Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 12. And let me tell you kind of where today's sermon had its beginnings. We, uh, what has become one of our holiday traditions at our house is that we're, when we're getting out the Christmas stuff to get ready to decorate, there's a particular item that we get out first. And we give it to the boys, and it is theirs to play with, to enjoy. And it's uh, something called a Little People Nativity Set. And I don't know if uh, any of y'all have the Little People Nativity Set or have seen the Little People Nativity Set, but it's just a, it's a cool thing that they can play with, understand a little bit about the story. It won't break. They, you know, Now, it is pretty hard, so it might break something else, but it itself will not break. And so they can play with it, have fun with it. And so this year when we got it out, we got it out and started setting it up, and Luke was particularly interested in it this year. And so we get the, the pieces out, and Luke starts to look at it, and he, he starts asking questions because we start telling him a little bit of the story, and I'm sitting around with him, and he starts going, Dave, where'd this one go? Dave, where's this one? And so we place it, and there it is there. You can see the nativity set. This is the place to go, oh, okay. And so it's cute little nativity people, you know. I mean, you've got the angel up top. You've got Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. Um, you've got the, the, the little people wise men. You've got the little people animals. And so it's a cute little thing. And we get them all arranged. And you know, I'm telling them names. This is Joseph. And this is Mary. That's Jesus' mommy. This is the baby Jesus. And we don't, you know, with Luke and, and Eli when he was that age, one of the things we're talking about, we don't want to lose baby Jesus. Make sure we keep up with baby Jesus. You know, all those things. So I leave Luke and in my heart is just comforted because it's this precious little moment. Luke is there playing with it, talking. The little guys are talking to each other. It's just a sweet moment. And I walk away and I go into the kitchen and do some things and I walk back to the living room and when I get back to the living room, the angel is no longer on top of the stable. The angel is now flown down and is attacking the wise man. He's protecting the baby Jesus. And he's knocking some animals out of the way, and the angel gets in some real trouble. And so the real hero of the day shows up with his theme song, Batman. And Batman flies in to rescue the day, knocks over some animals and the wise men, and the angel returns to the perch, and Batman saves the day. So I go, Luke, wait, we don't, you know, we don't hit with the baby, you know, with the angel. We don't, the wise men aren't bad guys. And so we start talking through that. Well, then I start noticing all these programs are on. When you have preschoolers on, your TV is not your TV. You realize that if you have preschoolers. It is their TV with their shows. Uh, um, Luke will tell me on a regular basis, Daddy, I not watch your show. I watch my show. And his shows are Go Diego Go and Dora the Explorer and Backyardigans and all of those. And what I noticed in when those, those shows have Christmas specials, and so we've got them taped and we're watching them, and almost all of those Christmas specials, Christmas has to be saved. Go Diego Go has to save Christmas. Dora the Explorer has to save Christmas. But it's not just those shows. I started watching some of the movies that are on. Uh, the Santa Claus, one, two, or three, is all about saving Christmas. Uh, you even look back a few years ago, there was a, um, you might remember the comedian Ernest? You remember Ernest? Yeah. He had a movie out called Ernest Saves Christmas. And I started thinking in my mind, well, why in the world does Christmas need saving? I mean, I think it's okay. 
Now, you can talk about each show has some reason Christmas needs to be saved, but it's really not a, a thing that's in trouble. And the Lord just kind of led me in reading one night to Revelation chapter 12 to realize that the whole idea of saving Christmas goes back to the very first Christmas. And that at the very first Christmas, Christmas was indeed in trouble. Revelation chapter 12 says this. Let me just say real quickly before I begin reading. My goal today is not to tell you everything that I can tell you about this passage or that gives you complete understanding of this passage. I was reading a great preacher from a uh, lived a long time ago, and he said, I don't intend to explain to you Revelation because I don't understand Revelation. And he said, when I listen to people take, talk sermons about Revelation, I'm more convinced than ever that nobody knows anything about Revelation because all they tell you is what's wrong about what other people think about Revelation. So they've taught me nobody knows what Revelation's about. All we know is that God said some stuff that we don't understand yet, and someday we might. Amen? All right. I got to come on in the first service. I get an amen in the second. All right. Revelation chapter 12. So I'm not telling you everything, but I want to point out a few things. It says, A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. I want you to picture this in your mind, this vision. Now, you realize this is symbolic language, so it's a vision, but I want you to picture it. Sometime, if you want to have fun, try to draw things that are described in Revelation. This is what he saw. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Here's what I want to do today. I want to start by describing and defining who some of these characters are, and then we're going to bring it to an understanding of some things that can help us in this Christmas season. And the first thing I want to do is define some of these characters. And the first character is the woman. Now, quick question for you. Any ideas on who this woman might be? What's that? I hear. Mary... Israel, any other 
suggestions? Okay, good. Nobody came up with a crazy one. That's good, all right? There are crazy ones out there. I wouldn't have told you you were crazy if you had said it. I might just have said, well, let's move on, all right? Crazy, but there are some crazy ones out there. There's a, uh, there's a movement called Christian science. Anybody ever heard the term Christian science movement? It's, uh, it's kind of like somebody has, to, has compared Christian science to grape nuts. Grape nuts is neither grapes nor nuts, but it's grape nuts, okay? Christian science is neither Christian nor science, but it's Christian science. They have a founder or one of their leaders named Mary Baker Eddy, and those people think that Mary Baker Eddy is the woman described here. All right. That's nuts. Maybe grape nuts. All right. That's bad. The other more common understandings are one is somebody said Mary, and that, that would be the logical thing we would think when you hear this because we're going to jump ahead for a moment, but it's no surprise. The baby here is Jesus, all right? And so who is Jesus' mom? Mary. So a woman gives birth to Mary, I mean, gives birth to Jesus, and so Jesus' mother is Mary. That makes perfect sense. I don't think that's right. I'll tell you why in a minute. Another popular understanding is that it's the church, that this is the church. There's only one problem with that. The baby is Jesus, then Jesus came before the church, right? And so Jesus in light gave birth to the church, if you will, through the Holy Spirit's empowerment, and so it's not the church. Well, then who is it? My personal understanding is that the woman is Israel. Now, here's why. It gives this description of her with the sun and the moon and the, the stars and all of that. And it harkens back to a dream that Joseph had in Genesis. Genesis 37, 9 through 11, if you want to write it down and go back and look. And in that dream in the Old Testament, you see the Revelation, one of the most interesting things about the book of Revelation is that it makes more allusions and references to the Old Testament than any other book in the New Testament. It is filled with that. And if you go back to the Old Testament in that dream, what it is is this picture of the nation of Israel. And so you have this picture of this woman who is the nation of Israel. Then you have the baby. We've already said this, but the baby is Jesus, right? Now, how do we know that? Well, it tells us that he will rule with an iron scepter, which is a description of the Son of Man, which is a description of Jesus. There's also this understanding there. Uh, it says that he will, in my version, in the NIV, it says a male child. Uh, the real understanding interpretation that's probably a man child, which means that it's a different kind of child. It's one that has maturity and growth, and that does not mean that it came out and looked different than other children. What it means is that Jesus, when he came out, was more developed in some ways because of the whole God-man mixture. So that leads us to the dragon. Any guesses on who the dragon is? Who is it? Satan. And look how it describes the dragon. It says that the dragon, and these are important, first of all, is enormous. That's the word that is translated in my, my version. It says in verse 3, there's a sign appeared in heaven, an enormous Red, which was a symbol in their day and time and, and a symbol of evil in some ways. An enormous red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns. Now, the word, the number seven in their 
language and their understanding meant completeness. Heads was an understanding of knowledge. What this describes is a huge red dragon that is very, very smart. Now, I don't believe Satan can read our minds. I don't believe Satan has all knowledge. But I believe Satan is very, very smart. And then it says ten horns and seven crowns on his head. Now, what in the world does that mean? That just means that he has real authority. Here's the point of all of that, and then we're going to get to some more practical stuff. The point of all of that description here is this, is that this birth, the birth of Jesus, as took place in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, is best described as another chapter in the ongoing conflict between God and Satan. Now, there are a lot of ways you can flesh that out. But the truth is, what this describes is a dragon, Satan, who is attempting to stop Christmas. That's what it says, isn't it? It says that he is sitting, waiting for the baby to be born. Yesterday, we took Eli and Luke to a big brother class at Baptist Hospital. They learned how to, um, to do big brother tasks. They learned what they could and could not do. Eli was not real excited about the diaper-changing section of that. We've told him he needs to get excited about that portion. But part of the tour they gave us was they took us to the room where, um, where you know, labor and delivery happens. And, and they showed us the bed where the mommy lays, and they showed us where they take the baby when the baby's been born and the heat lamp that's on there. And you've all, you know, been in those rooms or seen pictures of that. And I couldn't help but think about how absolutely helpless that baby is in those moments. You know, when the birth happens, the nurse takes the baby and she takes them over to the heating lamps and they begin to do tests and give shots and do all of this stuff. And you can't help but think of how absolutely helpless that child is. And as I was sitting in that room, briefly my mind went to Revelation 12, and I got this picture of this thing happening all around us that we don't even see, where this conflict is raging. And in those moments of Christmas, in those important moments in the history of mankind, there was this real battle going on where Satan, the adversary, the enemy of God, was attempting to kill the baby at the very beginning. There are two things I want us to think about today as we think about that. The first is this. I don't want you this Christmas season to miss the conflict. There is a uh, theologian that has come up with this concept called the excluded middle. And what he says basically is those of us that live in America or Europe or the West have this real understanding of everything that's physical being physical. We, we can touch it. We can sense it. We know it's real. And we don't have a problem thinking of God living somewhere else. But that we miss out on the fact that playing out in our daily lives on a regular basis is a conflict that is taking place in this middle ground where the spiritual impacts the physical. And as we think about Christmas this year, the question I want you to ask is, What conflict is happening in my life right now? What conflict is going on in my life? And is that conflict related to just natural stuff? Or is there a spiritual element to what's happening? I 
want you just to think about the conflict in Scripture. I don't want you to miss what's going on as we go from Genesis to Revelation. You think about this. In, in Genesis, we don't know when exactly the conflict started. We have descriptions here of a third of the angels being sent down to earth. We don't know exactly when it started, but we know the conflict was raging by the time we get to the Garden of Eden, right? Because in the Garden of Eden, you have this battle between man and Satan as the serpent and God who has given them instructions. And in that battle, man gives in to the temptation of Satan and he is banished from the garden. He is banished from that relationship, that intimate relationship with God. And much of the Old Testament is about attempting to reconnect God's people with God, to have himself have a people that will be able to proclaim his name to the nations. And we move into the New Testament, and here in Revelation chapter 12, I know it doesn't say this in Matthew's version. I know it doesn't say it in Luke's version. John does hint at this in his version when he talks about that the light has come into the darkness and the darkness has not recognized him. But here in Revelation 12, we see at Jesus' very birth, there is real conflict happening. That Satan attempted to keep Christ from coming, that when Christ came, he attempted to kill him. Part of the reason I think that the angels broke out in song on the hillside to the shepherds was not just, hey, you need to go see the baby, although that's part of it. Part of the reason they broke out in song is because they were excited that the game had changed. Christ had come. It was a game changer. It was new stuff happening in the eternal conflict. What I think is interesting is Satan wasn't satisfied with just letting Christ be born. He tried to kill him early, right? Growing up, one of my favorite shows to watch was a show called The Best Christmas Pageant Ever. How many of you are familiar with that? Just a few of you, all right? In The Best Christmas Pageant Ever, I read it to Eli over the last week or so, the book. There's a group of kids that they say are the worst kids in the world. Anybody remember their name? The Herdmans, right? The Herdmans are the worst kids in the world. And what happens is one of them at school, this, the main character's brother at school, accidentally tells one of the herdmans that they get free food at Sunday school. And so they all come to church on the day they're assigning parts or getting ready for the Christmas pageant. And one of the herdmans, who is now bribed his way into being Joseph, says, I don't even know what this is about. And so they begin to tell the Christmas story. But what's interesting is... They get to the end of the Christmas story, and just kind of a throw-in, they talk about Herod. And the writer of the book, through this little girl's voice, says, I never heard somebody so interested in Herod. In fact, Herod may have been a herdman, is what they said. But they said the herdmans eventually get to the point where they think somebody should have killed Herod. Because you don't try to kill baby Jesus. That's not what you do. And I think sometimes we read this story so much that we just go, oh, yeah, that's what happened, that's what happened. Jesus came, the angels came, Herod said, I'll kill everybody, but Jesus escaped. There was a massacre after Christ was born, all as part of this cosmic conflict. One of the things that happens in our lives, happens in my life at least, is when things go wrong in my life, One of the last places I look is my spiritual life. Is there something going on? 
And I'm not talking about the fact you get sick, I must have been unfaithful, I must not have done what the Lord wanted me to do. I'm talking about being caught in the middle of this cosmic conflict. We think of medical journals, we think of internet stuff, we try to think if there was somebody else's fault. I sat yesterday at lunch at a restaurant and the people behind me for 30 minutes talked about all the problems at their workplace and how it's always somebody else's fault. And yet we never think that we might be in part of this cosmic battle that is raging. It happened in the garden. It happened at his birth. It happened in the wilderness. Now, it happened both in the wilderness with the the children of Israel, but also I have in mind here with Jesus in his temptation account. His temptation account was nothing but spiritual warfare. Leading up to the cross, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's tested again, and spiritual warfare happens on the cross as he is there dying for our sins. Not only does it happen on the cross, but in Jesus' life it happens at the resurrection. And so you have this cosmic conflict going in and out always. And what we have to understand, and what I believe is saying at the end of this chapter when it says in verse 13, or not the chapter, but what we read, verse 13 when it says, The dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth. He pursued the woman. I do believe that the woman at the beginning of chapter 12 is Israel. But I also believe that we as the church are the new Israel, God's new chosen people, and that right now the dragon, Satan, who is in the process of still trying to cause havoc, is working on us. And so we need to be aware of the conflict in our daily lives. Sometimes as Christians, we get pretty uh, confident that we've got all the answers. And when we see things happening outside of what we think is right in the world, we think, boy, the conflict is raging out there. The culture wars are raging, and sometimes we get in part of, part of that. What Scripture teaches pretty plainly is that Satan's first group that he attacks is us, not them. And what we have to be aware of is that when problems come in our lives, whether they have their, whether they have their genesis in the fact that we have caused them ourselves, somebody else has caused them, or they're spiritual in nature, Satan will attempt to take any conflict in your life and turn it to where you're no longer living for the Lord. And so on a daily basis, you have to be constantly aware of the conflict in your life. When illness comes to your family, either in small ways or in big ways, are you constantly asking the question, how can I use this to further my commitment to the Lord? When financial difficulties are there, are you asking the question, how can I use this in this conflict to further my relationship with the Lord? And all of that is good because we know the outcome. See, the conflict happens at the resurrection. It happens in our daily lives. But we also know that it's going to end at the second coming of Jesus. That one day, this whole conflict will be thrown out. And Jesus will come again and set things right. I mean, just look at what it says here. You know, I was trying to think if I've ever seen on a Christmas card any kind of depiction of this. I haven't. It's completely different. In fact, this is what I was thinking. This depiction of Christmas, it's much closer to Luke's depiction than most of mine. Second thing I want us to do. Don't miss the conflict, but don't miss the victory. You see, all of that would be terrible, terrible news 
if we didn't have assurance of victory. Four things under this I want you to see. First of all is that Satan is a defeated foe. Verse 7. Now, there's some debate about when exactly this happens. Let me just tell you, John in this writing of Revelation is in no way trying to give us a chronological description of when everything happened. He could care less of what our timelines look like. All right? He did not want me to be able to put a big poster board behind me with a timeline on it. He was not writing in that way. Okay? He doesn't care. But the point here is not so much when it happened, is that it did happen. And it is that Satan has been defeated. Verse 7, and there was war in heaven. What word does he use there? War. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. I, I couldn't help but think when I looked at that um, little people uh, nativity, that, that angel just looks so cute, doesn't it? When you do angel Christmas pageants, who always gets to play the angels? The cutest kids, right? Now, if your kid didn't get picked for an angel, that doesn't mean anything. Right? I mean, you get those cute little kids up there. You put the wings on them. You put the halos on them and all that. And I couldn't help but think, I don't think that is anything like Michael looks like. Right? Remember, we've said this before. What's the first reaction everybody has when they see an angel in the, in the Bible? They're scared to death. Would you be scared of that little thing you saw up there on the little people nativity? You're like, come give me a hug. Isn't that sweet? It says here that Michael and his angels, that's the commanding angels he has, fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. It's a war. Verse 8. But he, now who is he there? The serpent, the dragon, Satan, was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil of Satan who leads the world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. A couple of important things there. First of all, you notice that Satan has been defeated. Now, this is just like we talked about a, a few months ago, that we live in this already not yet tension, that Satan's already been defeated, but he's not yet got the full punishment for it. What we understand is he has already been defeated, so we serve the winning side if we follow Jesus. But I want you to notice this. Is Satan thrown to hell? No. Where's he thrown? Here. A lot of people, when you ask, is Satan real? Absolutely. Well, where does Satan live? Well, Satan lives in hell. Satan does not live in hell yet. He's here. He's not omnipresent. and He's in a spiritual, excluded, middle kind of place, but he's here. The first thing to notice there is that Satan is defeated. Here's the second thing. Salvation is a settled fact. Verse 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. What it basically is saying, because Jesus. Now, what it tells us here at the beginning up there in verse verse 5 is that the son was born. It kind of gives us the whole life of Jesus in one sentence. The birth was happened. He ruled the nations. 
the child was snatched up to God. Now that means that he that tells us everything. He was born, he lived, he died, he rose again, and then he ascended to his father to his throne. And so it basically says that Jesus has defeated everything because of what he has done. Our salvation has been secured. Then it tells us that for those of us that follow him, the saints have a victorious faith. Verse 11. They, that's us, those are the people who follow Jesus Christ, overcame the dragon by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. I want you to notice something at the last part of that verse. It says, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. What it basically says here is that as saints, and that just word just means anybody that is a follower of Jesus, we have this overcoming ability to conquer anything that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. And because of what He has done, our future is secure. And in fact, it says here basically that they were so confident in the blood of the Lamb. They were so confident in the word of their testimony of the fact that Jesus is the Christ. That they were willing, if they lost their lives, it was a joy. There's a pastor out in Dallas, Texas, a guy named Matt Chandler, who's uh, a year older than me. And he is pastoring a great church in the Dallas area. It's called the Village Church. And on Thanksgiving morning, Matt collapsed with a, a, what they later discovered was a brain tumor. And at 34 years old, Matt was scheduled to have part of his frontal lobe removed with the tumor. That happened uh, about a little over a week ago. It happened like on a Friday. Well, on Sunday of last week, his church body saw a video that Matt made before the surgery. Now, when they showed the video, Matt was still in recovery, had not begun talking, hadn't come out of anything yet. He's in the process of recovering now. But it was interesting because Matt basically in that video says that he's been able to serve the Lord in all the good times. He used Hebrews chapter 11 where all these good things have happened to him and he served the Lord faithfully there. And he said he always felt guilty when he preached that passage because it was the flip side of those that suffered and were sawn in two and were persecuted for their faith. And Matt Chandler said this. He said, I count it a privilege that I've been able to serve the Lord in the good. And now I count it a privilege that I can rejoice in the Lord in this. I'd begun my study of this week. And when I got to verse 11, I asked myself the question. If tomorrow morning I collapsed and had an x-ray done and I was facing that kind of ordeal, would I be able to legitimately say, I praise the Lord that He has found me faithful to glorify Him in this. Do I hold my life, my family, my business, my church, my stuff so lightly 
that I can trust Him with it all. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Here's the last sad thing on this. Is that sinners, saints have a victorious faith, but sinners have a tragic future. Verse 12 says this, Rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. The understanding here is that those that are not under the protection of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior have to withstand the full brunt of Satan and his army. The last phrase there is particularly interesting. It says, he is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. I don't know what's happening in your life this Christmas. I don't know whether it's all good. I don't know whether it's really bad. I don't know if there's sadness. I don't know if there's anger. I don't know if there's confusion. I don't know what's happening. But as I have looked this week, I realize that sometimes at Christmas we get so caught up in all of the the trappings of Christmas, that we miss real opportunities for spiritual growth and development and advancing the kingdom of God during this month. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that, that this is the time in our, in our country when people say the name of Jesus more than any other time. And I know all the happy holiday stuff is out there and people aren't saying Jesus as much as they used to. But still, you hear people talking about Jesus and seeing pictures of the Christ child and the manger scene all over the place. And I just wonder if one of the ways Satan has increased his fury is to make us focus on all that other stuff and forget that it's an opportunity to advance the kingdom of God. That last phrase kind of hits me. Because I think about the people that I know that have yet to make a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And how that there are times in this holiday season and in holiday seasons past when I have sat around the table and we've told jokes and we've had fun and we've talked about football, we've talked about family, we've talked about games, we've done all that stuff. We've had a great time around the table and yet the most important question that could be asked or discussed around that table has been left unsaid. And I just wonder how many of us in this room are going to sit at tables that are going to be at parties They're going to be in situations with people in the trappings of a Christmas event and have people sitting around us that are in desperate need of the gospel and we're not going to take advantage of the opportunity. I don't want you to miss this Christmas, the conflict that is there and the need for us to be advancing the kingdom in the midst of it. Now, the month of January, one of the things that we're going to do is that we're going to take an extended look at spiritual warfare out of Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to try to do that in a creative way. But this is a very real topic. And what we need to understand is that when we are avoiding the subject or not thinking about it, then we're not engaging it like we should. 
And I just wonder how many of you have things in your life right now, conflicts that are going on. And I'm not saying they've been caused by this cosmic conflict, but perhaps they're a result of some things that are happening, and God is trying to call you in the midst of it closer to Him. And I just wonder if this Christmas you'll do that.